1: support for this podcast and the following message come from Gaia.com the on-demand streaming tv service that helps you achieve your highest potential at your convenience to get your first month at only 99 cents visit gaia.com forward slash my seven chakras my seven chakras episode 207
2: without thinking of the letters listen to the language of the heart
3: Welcome to My Seven Chocolates. And now your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. Kumar.
1: What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, founder and host of My 7 Chakras, the show where we dive deep into the ancient world to uncover nuggets of wisdom that will help you find your life's purpose and beyond. So if you want actionable steps that you can take right now to change your life, then you are listening to the right episode. And before we begin our episode, like always, let's listen to a recent iTunes review, which is by Zenkin, and it's titled Join the Action Tribe. I came across this podcast as my friend Dr. Chris Friesen was a guest. I immediately fell in love with the show. The episodes are to the point and very informative. I love how this, more than any other podcast, by listening, you're actually joining the Action Tribe. It's a movement and the host Aditya really makes you feel like you're part of something bigger. So thanks a lot for your review. Zenken, Ken, Action Tribe, do you want your review to be read out as well? Then make sure you take a moment to share your thoughts, your views, and your experiences in the form of an iTunes review. And writing a review is really simple. It's a two-step procedure. On our podcast page on your iTunes, you'll see a reviews button, and then you just got to hit that button and then hit write a review. Super simple. and We can also connect on Instagram at my7chakras. And if you want to write into me, you can email me at aj at my7chakras.com. Once again, that's aj at my7chakras.com. Seven is a word. And with that, let us begin today's episode. Our featured guest for today is Lisa Smart. Lisa, are you ready to inspire?
2: Yes, I am.
1: <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Great. So Lisa Smart is the author of Words at the Threshold. She's a linguist, educator and poet. She founded the Final Words Project, an ongoing study devoted to collecting and interpreting the mysterious language at the end of life. She co-facilitates workshops about language and consciousness with Raymond Moody at universities, hospices and conferences and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. So Lisa, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for taking the time. It's great to have you on.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Good morning.
1: Awesome. Good morning to you. So let's begin with some inspiration. Let me ask you, what is your favorite inspirational quote and how does that quote apply to your day-to-day life?
2: The quote is by Rumi and it is, without thinking of the letters, listen to the language of the heart. And as a linguist, this quote is particularly important to me because I understand the importance of language, but I also understand the limitations of spoken language and that there's a language of the heart that is communicated in many other ways than just regular literal spoken language. And it's important to know how to commune with the language of the heart as well as the language of the mind.
1: So Action Tribe, this is such a profound quote without thinking of the letters, listen to the language of the heart. So take a moment to understand what's going on in your day-to-day life. Are you just communicating using the words and the letters or are you also using those subtle non-verbal communication, that body language, that language of the heart with which, uh, you know, babies communicate with their parents or people around them. Let's start using the language of the heart more so that we can connect with others in a more meaningful way. So thanks a lot for sharing that wonderful quote. And with that, let's dive in. Um, Elisa, what made you write your book, words at the threshold
2: what made me write the book is in the last three weeks of my father's life as he was dying from cancer i noticed remarkable shifts in the way he was communicating my father was a very intellectual person who always um, spoke in very literal and analytical ways he also did not have much of a spiritual perspective And in those last three weeks of life, I was stunned when he started talking about angels, when he started referring to other dimensions, and when his language became more and more metaphoric and nonsensical and just almost poetic in those final days. And as a linguist, I was finally attuned to the changes I saw and, um, I wrote down everything he said, and that inspired me to want to know more about what happens to people in their final weeks of life, what happens to the language at end of life.
1: Mm -hmm. So what really struck for me was that in the last three weeks of your father's life, you noticed a shift in his communication, right? He was very logical, very scientific, very analytical. But in the last three weeks, he began speaking about uh, angels and his language pattern changed, became very poetic, very metaphorical, very on his intuitive, intuitive side in the side of intuition. And so that shift made you sort of ponder. So was that what led to the final words project or what really, you know, stimulated that project?
2: Absolutely. After I noticed those changes, um, I went to study linguistics at UC Berkeley. So I went up this street. My parents lived in Berkeley and I went into the linguistics department after my father passed and I was very curious about what I had noticed and I had assumed there'd be lots and lots of journal articles written about the language of end-of-life because we know there's lots written about the language of infancy and toddlers right yes. how we acquire language so I just thought well I assume there's lots written about end-of-life language and I looked and there was absolutely nothing about the linguistics the patterns and the themes of people as they are dying and when I noticed there was nothing written about that I was very baffled because what I had written down and saw was so striking to me. So I then began to read everything I could about end of life. And one of the books that I read was Raymond Moody's Life After Life, which I had also read when I was 17. And that's the book in which he coined the term near-death experience. And um, I found his work very compelling. And So coincidentally, synchronistically, uh, my mother has a friend and he had mentioned he was going to be teaching with Raymond Moody Mm -hmm. in the coming month. And even more synchronistically, I received my tax refund right after I heard about that for (laughs) $2,000, which was just the amount I needed. And I flew out and um, studied with Raymond Moody. Got
1: it. So it was really interesting. It seems like you embarked on an adventure on finding out whether there was something written about end-of-life language. And as you mentioned, there's so much written about how babies communicate, right? But you found out that there wasn't much written about this topic. And so many synchronicities, so many events that led up to you writing this book. You read the book Life After Life by Raymond Moody, who amazingly coined the term life after death. And you found out that someone in your family was actually going to do a presentation with the same person. And so it seemed like there were some breadcrumbs that were on your path to guiding you to, you know, the work that you had to do, which I'm sure is such an important work because there hasn't been much written about this topic. But my question is, uh, what was your father's initial reaction to his diagnosis?
2: Well, his initial reaction, like many of us, it was prostate cancer. So he didn't at all that we didn't expect that he would be dying so soon but at the very uh, he, he went through this process where he really entered sort of the active dying phase and that was uh, three weeks before he left us and before then he was lucid and he was fine and then the night as the he entered this phase he walked out the front door of the house Um, where he and my mother were living on midnight on a January night in just his pajamas or almost his underwear, you know, he just had his sweats on and he started walking down the street and he came up to these two police officers and just said, um, I'm looking for the big art exhibition and I'm carrying all these boxes. Where's the art show? And the Mm. police officers looked at him and thought, oh, poor old man. And, uh, you know, didn't know. He was 77. But until then, he had been completely lucid just, you know, days before. And they brought him to the hospital. And, of course, my mother contacted me. and, And I was more, you know, terrified because I'd never heard my father speak this way or anything like this. And yet what's so interesting, what I came to discover is very often in the days or weeks before someone dies, they announce some kind of big occasion or big event mm. coming. And for my father, it was the big art show because my mother was an artist and that was sort of the metaphor of his and their life story together. And he was talking about this big art show coming and he had the big boxes, which he always carried for my mother. Okay. And so it was, um, so that was very compelling and I later found out that it was also quite common
1: for mm-hmm, people
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. to do that. Got it. Now, now, you said that on the night before, during that night, he walked out the front door, walked down the street, and he spoke to the police officers, asked them directions to the art show, right? Which was obviously a metaphor for an impending event that was soon to come. Yes. Okay. Now, you spoke about active dying. What What is, what is this exactly, this phase?
2: Yeah, what I've come to understand, and I may not have all the terminology exactly correct because I'm not a you know, medical person, but yeah. there, there's sort of a phase where people... Um, we, you know, people may be ill or have chronic conditions, and we know that they're terminally, you know, they're terminally ill, but there's a period where people really start, there's huge shifts, and that's where we see shifts in language in their body, where their body really prepares for passing, for passing on. And mm. so my father began to enter that phase just as he spoke in these strange terms, whereas before, you know, he had some illnesses, we knew that he was terminally ill, but there was no indication that he would be dying soon. But Mm -hmm. as soon as he entered this phase, these certain markers begin to occur. Like people lose their appetite. That's when we start seeing shifts in their language. We may hear about the announcement of the big event. People also start using metaphors of a trip or a journey. And um, there are just uh, medical markers, and some of them I'm not fully uh, aware of. But it just people become much less kind of connected to the real world. And uh, you know, he he was. Um, pretty much tied to the bed, whereas before he was walking and he, he was more active. And when he was in the hospital, they were ready to, you know, try to pump him up with drugs and do all these things to see if they could sustain his life. And I remember him just looking at my mother and me and shaking his head. And he said, take me home, take me home. And we all knew that home may have had a double meaning at that Aww. point. Um, And so, of course, we brought him home, and he just went through this very beautiful and remarkable surrendering during those last three weeks. And it was also remarkable because my father was a man who was very afraid of dying. Mm -hmm. And what I saw in those last three weeks was a transformation that was reflected in his language, but also just reflected in his sense of peace in those last last weeks.
1: Got it, got it. So you suggested that during this phase, during the last three weeks, his personality also underwent many changes, right? So... He was afraid of death earlier, and there were certain shifts. Could you talk to us a bit more about how his personality in particular changed during this phase?
2: You know, my father uh, was a New Yorker, you know, a cigar-chomping New Yorker. Mm. He loved to gamble. He was flirtatious with all the waitresses. He was kind of loud and um, boisterous, but he was a fighter, Mm. you know, his— Even his father used to take him to the boxing matches, right? He was a fighter. And he also just hated the idea of death. And he just thought, you know, nothing's going to knock me down. I don't have, you know, death will never knock me down, right? Just a fighter. Mm -hmm. And in those last weeks, he just entered a state of complete gratitude and surrenderance. And then when he started talking about angels, that just blew me away. And three days before he died, he announced, um... Enough, enough, the angels say enough, three days left. Mm. And he just, in those final weeks, he began to say things like, my modality is broken, which is technically nonsense, but it's fascinating. My modality is broken. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, He said to me one day, Lisa, there's so much so in sorrow no. and there seemed to be this kind of surrenderance to almost a poetic understanding almost like mystical right. language mm-hmm. and um and of course his very last uh, words to my mother was thank you thank you i love you and one of the last things i'll mention is as he was dying and started talking about seeing a green dimension and yes. these landscapes opening up before him that he was seeing um You know, he really seemed to be, you know, his eyes were tracking things up on the ceiling. And I really got the sense that he was engaged in a world that was unseen to us and a world that my father, if I ever had mentioned anything like it, he would have laughed at me and made fun of me. So it's a really, and he would say, "Um, I'm working on myself. I'm working on myself. (laughs) We'd come in Uh, So it was, it was, it was, he made me very unafraid of dying because he was a man who was a fighter and terrified of that last passage. And yet, as he was dying, both his language and his perception seemed to indicate that he was entering a dimension and a world. That was very reassuring and and comfortable.
1: You know, after observing these things uh, in your father's personality, in his language, in the use of metaphors and patterns, you launched the Final Words Project and began analyzing the linguistic patterns and themes of hundreds of people. Right. And you've also analyzed over 1500 end of life phrases. So what patterns have you discovered from this?
2: Right, um, the patterns that we found was, as I had mentioned with my father's language, there's an increase in metaphoric language, and the metaphors often have to do with people's life experiences, so a dancer might use. Words that are related to dance um, or a contractor might use language related to houses that they're seeing on the other side or Mm. things like that. So there is increase in metaphoric language and the metaphors that we see are those that are announcing a big event. And we also see lots of metaphors of travel, people talking about buses coming or looking for their passports or needing to pack (laughs) their bags. Yeah, it's so remarkable, and they're so rich. And we also see patterns of lots of nonsensical language and paradoxical language, and we see repetition, um, non-referential. I'm giving you kind of the overview now, but those are the kinds of patterns that we see. Um, just shifts of language that we don't see in ordinary life.
1: Mm -hmm. So among these other people that you learned about or studied, did you notice anyone having similar visions to those of your father?
2: Absolutely. So as I mentioned, uh, metaphors are very common. My father, um, nonsensical or paradoxical language is common. And what I mean by that is that we know from people who have near-death experiences who die and then come back, they speak in these very kind of self-contradictory and paradoxical ways so they may say something like i never felt as alive as when i was dead right. Well, that makes no sense right so you hear in the language of the dying these sort of paradoxical things so my father said um introductory offer store is closing oh. you know so introductory offer store is closing <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so we hear these kinds of contradictions contradictory phrases that we rarely see in the language of the living and I found those kinds of patterns yep. in, in that and then when I talked about the angels and so forth you know we might consider it nonsense when people talk about the forest that they see on the walls or angels mm. coming for them or people very very common is people start talking about loved ones who had died yep. Who come to their bedside to bring them home or to help them or to give them comfort and relief. This is very common. So um, all of these things, my father occurred in my father's language, and as I did the research, I found that many of these were hallmarks that are in the language of other people,
1: as well. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you speak about the concert of death, right? Because the concert of death is has been spoken about, written about in in, in books for thousands of years. And uh, death, it seems, has a very purging effect, right? Like you mentioned, after you experience death, you feel more alive again, which is sort of uh, you know opposites, right? <laughs> it's like an oxymoron. But uh, if you think about it, you know the entire industry is based on providing you experiences of death, right? People go to watch horror movies and uh, you know scary movies because they get a thrill out of uh, experiencing death even for those few minutes people go on thrill rides and roller coasters which bring them closer to that sense of death because they're plunging down and going up people love going in shark infested waters behind a cage and it seems like death has this very intoxicating effect and uh, for those who really experience death like near-death experience they are in uh, in a way you know like a butterfly comes transformed completely like like a phoenix you know emerges out of the dust it feels like they've they're changed uh individuals like people who've uh you know come back from from the deaths come back from the void so to speak no my question is uh, you know you've spoken about you know th- you know those people who are on the on the verge of death and what they uh, what they see and how they how they talk but let's talk about You know, children who are on the verge of death. The people who you studied, were they mostly older in age or were some of them um, children too?
2: There was definitely a range. And one of the women who provided many transcripts to me um, was a hospice nurse who worked with children. And her stories. You know, they're actually very common, and yet it's interesting because it appears to me that children may have a closer connection to the unseen world, and the more that I've researched this, mm. the more it seems that we come in. Th- it, I really get this sense that the portal opens at both sides, you know, at birth and at death that some mm. kind of door opens. And I've spoken to both labor, you know, labor nurses and palliative nurses who have worked on both sides of the spectrum. And both of them say that there is this very, there's a real similarity in the rooms of the dying, and the rooms of those being born. There's kind of this sacred intensity. And also, you know, birth is very messy and not always beautiful. In what we no. think of as beauty and neither is death. And yet there seems to be this very, very sacred quality, and I really get the sense that children come into the world from source, whatever source is, and that we return to that so the stories we hear from children oftentimes the children in the accounts that I have really seem to be teaching their parents um, that it's okay and but they also have similar Connections to seeing their loved ones and um who had gone, and sometimes they see grandparents they never even met, never knew existed, and it surprises their parents that they start referring to them and on yeah. the other side, those children who are not- who are not dying but are with those at the bedside. Oftentimes, for example, one young uh, toddler, after her mother passed, referred to her mother's partner and said, "Oh, oh look at all the birds! Look at all the birds!" and mm. pointed to the ceilings. And she also uh, told her um, her other mother, because uh, they were a woman and woman couple, um, told her other mother she saw Jijo, who climbing up a ladder as she was leaving and telling the toddler she couldn't come up the ladder with her. Oh. So in that, it's a beautiful story. And I've heard so many stories where toddlers and young ones are with the dying, and they seem to have this kind of connection and communication where those of us who are in middle age or in the middle of life don't seem to fully understand or don't seem to have in the same way. So yeah, there seems to be a real connection between um, young ones and older ones.
1: Wonderful. So it seems like you've been to both sides of the airport, right? When people are arriving (laughs) on the earth and when people are leaving and both of them notice that it is definitely uh, not clean. It's a bit messy affair. And I've done some research on the auras of people on both sides, right? Auras of newly born babies and the aura of ah. you know people who are soon going to die and what i've noticed based on what people you know some people who can see the auras really clearly they notice that when a child is born the Aura has not completely manifested into the physical plane. Yeah. It's still a part of it is in the non-physical plane, and a part of it is in the physical plane. So the aura is shaped very differently. It sort of is, you know, you know, it's it, there's a point to uh, on the head, you know, that suggests yeah. that the aura is still being manifested. It takes a couple of weeks to for it to get completely developed. And similarly, when somebody is going to die, the aura shrinks. There's less of an aura, which means that the uh, spiritual being that the person is is getting ready to go back into the non-physical plane. And it sort of seems really interesting when I use the information that I'm receiving from you, and it all makes sense now.
2: It Really, and you know, just to add to that, that's beautiful information. Thank you so much for for that. And, um, you know, when we come into this world, we have the capacity, our minds have the capacity to produce 800 different sounds or phonemes. And what happens at about six months, that greatly reduces as we manifest and come into this world to the number of sounds or phonemes of our native language or languages oh, okay. and so it's fascinating to me because um, what you're talking about what happens with the aura and how things change is as we develop the, the language of this of, of this plane right yeah. as we enter suddenly our capacities in some ways we become reduced yes. or at least we're defined by being here and also you know if you look at the language of children there's a lot of what we call gibberish or nonsense mm-hmm. And then we, when we look at the language of the dying, we start seeing often more gibberish mm, and yes. um, language. So there are so, so many parallels, I think. And I think we've only just begun to understand what they are. And I believe there really might be parallels between what we see and know energetically, like what you yeah. explain, and what we hear in language. And I believe language and the energy field are connected in ways that I hope to keep learning about so thanks again for your for your um, example Dior. thanks a
1: lot thanks a lot now my question is how did the family members or the healthcare providers react to your proposition and your project
2: you know I think generally the feedback has been so so good and I've been so delighted and for the healthcare providers many of them have seen these things yeah. but, um, but haven't really had anybody come in and really document them and give them the affirmation and validation. And one of the things I heard from healthcare providers, which completely surprised me, is that there were several nurses I spoke to in very traditional medical facilities who explained to me that as their patients were dying, they said they actually felt that they could begin to hear those dying patients' talk to them telepathically Mm. about when they were getting ready to die and what they needed. And many of these were classically scientifically trained nurses who, before they had worked on these kinds of hospice wards and so forth, would have never believed such a thing, but they had such strong experiences and there was one woman who works in a very 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 prestigious hospital in in this country and she would be able to say to the doctors and so forth yes this patient only has two more days Mm. to live now she wouldn't say to the doctors because i hear this patient communicating to me and telepathically because she knew she would be laughed off the ward or, yeah. you know, but she um, was so accurate that the doctors trusted her completely, but they had ascribed all her ability to her medical training. And yet she shared with me and asked me not to say her name or where she worked, that for her, she actually received all this information telepathically. And I heard this Oh very frequently from hospice workers and nurses, and it was something that I had never expected to find from my research. So that was surprising. And what I heard from loved ones is one is um, those who I asked to or who, you know, and said they'd be willing to transcribe their loved ones phrases because I didn't want to go and put tape recorders by people's bedsides. That seemed Completely disrespectful. So I invited people to to transcribe when they felt it was right and when they wanted to. And for the people who did transcribe their loved ones' phrases, they, they felt more connected yep. to them. And it was almost like a way of entering into the portal with the mm. person they loved. And by doing so, they they received many jewels and in insights that they felt they would not have had they only heard some of the language and not written it down.
1: Right, right, right. Now, from the last few weeks, let's move on to the last few seconds, the last words, in fact. Did you notice any patterns or themes in terms of the last word or the last phrase that a person uses before dying?
2: Well, very often, they are so connected to who the person is. It's as if everything we've ever been shows up in that moment. So, anything from just tremendous gratitude and love to someone saying the word bullshit. (laughs) I hope I can say that um, to the word bullshit. And this was a person who was a fighter all his life and never, never found a moment. Um, Never found that kind of surrenderance that my father found in the last three weeks. And, um, you know, I had mentioned uh, Jeffrey Holder, a dancer and choreographer, whose final words were something like, one, two, three, dance, two, three. You know, the very words. And, of course, we know something like Steve Jobs. Oftentimes people have exclamations of wonder when they die. Steve Jobs, of course, said, oh, wow, oh, wow, Mm. oh, wow. So you often hear final words that are very connected to who the person is. Oftentimes, right before someone dies, they actually are not speaking anymore, and we might see them make movements with their hands Mm -hmm. um, and not, not say anything at all, too. Many people are completely unresponsive, but we know from research that people probably hear what we are saying. So it's very important. To make sure we send words of love in those very final moments.
1: Got it. Now, speaking about words of love, let's say someone listening to the show right now has a friend or a family member that is nearing death. How can how can they benefit from your research? What should they do or not do to make the most of uh, the time with their loved ones?
2: I think one of the most important things is whatever the person is saying, validate it. You know, my father said to me, "All right, let's get the oxygen oxygen tank ready. I'm going on my trip to Las Vegas." Mm-hmm. And he, I told you, he loved gambling, and just, and he used the metaphor of a t- trip, which is so common. So instead of going, Daddy, we're not going to Las Vegas. Come on, Dad, mm-hmm. you're dying, right? Yeah. You know, instead of saying that, you're like, Yep, Papa, we're gonna get the oxygen tank, and we're gonna go on that trip to Las Vegas. Hey, Daddy, tell me more about that trip. What do you need to get there and be happy? You know, so you really enter into the person's world. One woman shared with me the story of of her loved one who said mama train, get me on the mama train. And she was kind of in a distraught space. And she was like, get me on the mama train. And instead of saying, oh, come on, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. She got everyone in the room on the bed and said, okay, everybody, we're getting on that mama train. We're getting on that mama train. We're going to go see mama. We're <laughs> on our way to see mama. Right. So, you know, just as we would really, you know, enter the world of a child that we love who speaks in imaginary terms about their imaginary best friend you know assume that that world is as real as the world as the one we see with our five, you know five senses and um so i would really invite people to just listen and validate validate enter into that world again as rumi said with the language of your heart and with a sense of play and joy and sacred wonder because we really don't know what we cannot see we really do not know what other world or dimension exists so mm-hmm. In any way that you can enter with your loved one, do it with awe, with reverence, and step in with your foot into that reality and into that world and have faith that that's going to be comforting to them. And here's the big surprise. It might also be comforting to you, you know, Mm -hmm. to the person. Because I found it so comforting as I entered into my father's world. And ha, and what joy I felt in hearing that my father was seeing angels after a lifetime of telling me that they don't <laughs> exist. <laughs>
1: That's so true. That's so true. And also what you say points out to a, sh- a social issue that exists in society right now, which is called ageism, which uh, is basically assuming that a senior or an elder is not capable or productive or you know good enough to be uh, like he or she was when they were young. Yeah. And this is in fact very rampant more so than racism or sexism ageism and uh, I've been doing some research also on uh, the senior population you know in terms of studies what they found is seniors in general are more positive about their age they're more they're wonderful to be with they're really patient and uh, you know we've got a responsibility to cure or to deal with this sort of uh, thing that's in society which is ageism so not necessarily a person who's going to die but somebody who has maybe past the age of 65 and is uh, for some reason or the other uh, having these challenges from uh, you know other folks in society and I think each one of us um, even listeners have has this role to play to make the society a better place uh, to live in and thanks a lot for sharing uh, your perspectives uh, Lisa based on what you've shared today what is that one action step you'd like to share with our listeners
2: one, the one I had prepared today and um, may seem very different than what mm-hmm. we've spoken about. And what it is, is that, you know, you had mentioned about the age, you know, about people who are older. Well, my husband's 68 and he practices Aikido, mm-hmm. uh, which he's been doing for 40 years. And one of the things about the language of the heart is that as important as language is, it's also important not to be overly attached to the words that we hear mm. and remember that there's an energy behind that. So one of the action steps that I had written down when, when I had seen, seen your questions was when you feel like you want to say certain words – to actually not speak <laughs> mm-hmm. and to, to move them. So my husband and I, when we're angry with each other, rather than say those words, we actually dance them <laughs> together. <laughs> So one of the things is to really notice the difference between really become a witness to our language and realize that language is sort of like a coat we put on. And there are many types of coats and not to get attached to them. And one of the ways to loosen our attachment to language is also to not speak and to move. And the next time you're angry or frustrated, try to dance it and see what happens.
1: And I'm guessing the movement or the dancing is such a more effective way of releasing that energy, right? Because sometimes you might not find the right word to express that energy also. And uh, there's nothing like dancing or moving that can ensure that you're able to flow the energy out just like it flowed in.
2: Yes, and to realize that language is flexible. So the reason I say that action step, which may seem so far from the idea of my being a linguist, is because when we are too attached to the words, When we're too attached, we think that language is the truth so that when we hear our dying loved ones say things that make no sense, we're completely confused because it seems like they're not speaking a truth because we're so attached to what our ideas are of truth. And yet when we can dance our anger, what always happens to my husband when we start getting in a fight and we start dancing, what we realize is that the truth is that we are just energetic beings who are filled with love Mm. and language manifests in so many ways. And when we can be flexible with how language expresses ourselves and be witness to the language rather than become victim to it or become attached to it, then language becomes so intriguing. So, you know, for so many years, people have not looked at nonsensical languages worthy of study right? Because they just think, oh, it's just nonsense. But what we know is that the nonsense we hear is also an expression of who we are. And it might be a manifestation of us crossing into another dimension, right? So the more flexible we can be in hearing language and learning about language, the better it is. So I feel just by shutting up sometimes Mm. (laughs) and moving, you know, anger becomes just energy when we're angry. And then it it's not harmful or hurtful to anyone. It's just energy.
1: Got it. And also energetically, just to add, uh, people who are able to see the auras very clearly. When they see a person is really angry, they are able to see crystal, you know, crystal-like forms which are like deep reddish in color, hovering around the person who is angry.
3: Absolutely. Reddish,
1: you know, and which, and if it turns depression, it, it might become like brownish or or uh, or blackish. So these are thought forms that hover around your mental aura, uh, and this is quite fascinating. Me sort of trying to relate uh, my study uh, in the energetic realms to your amazing research uh, as far as linguistics as and also the study that you have conducted action drive to access the show notes for today's episode visit my 7 forward slash 205 that's my7chakras.com forward slash 205 Sometimes what makes us insecure and vulnerable becomes the fuel we need to be overachievers. The antidote for a snake bite is made from the poison and the thing that made you go backward is the same force that will push you forward. And this is an amazing quote by T.D. Jakes, action taker. I hope you heard this loud and clear. Your insecurity and vulnerability is not a weakness. In fact, it is a sign and it's a nudge. A hint that if you take action and work on that aspect of yourself, you will in fact skyrocket into your greatness. Never assume something is your weakness because you have the choice. You have the power to take a decision and work on it. No effort goes to waste. In fact, it might feel sometimes that your effort is not paying off, but every time you work on yourself, there's a micro change that is happening in your mind, in your body, in your spirit. and that's a compound effect. There's a compound effect to these changes. You'll not notice it initially, but very soon, that very weakness that you once had will become your strength and you will experience a human revolution. So Lisa, talk to us about a time in your life when you experienced or faced a difficult situation. Tell us what got you there in the first place and then what steps did you take to overcome it?
2: Well, you know, I really thought about this and I think the biggest challenge for me was that I was severely abused as a child. I was sexually abused and tortured by people who were not my family. And one of the things that happened to me through that experience, and I think it brought me to the work that I'm doing, is, you know, I was told to shut up and not talk about it. And it gave me this passion in my life to help those who do not have a voice, to have a voice. And I think that's partly what brought me to the language of the dying. But one of the things is that it's so important to speak our our truth and, and to find the ways to do that and for me, I had to learn to listen to my body, I had to learn to listen, you talk about chakras and energy, so I learned, part of the ways I learned to heal is to reconnect to my body and hear the messages of my body, because our bodies speak to us as well as our mind and our typical language, so um, I think that it's very important for all of us to own our voice and own our truth and speak our truth and not to live in fear as I did for so long and I really invite people to find what truth is and you know going through the chakras i mean i that I think I'll mention it because I do it almost every day, and it was one of the ways for me to to speak more freely. Mm. That is, I would go through and tone through all of my chakras. You know, I like make a voice a sound. Mm. Over the years, because I'm I'm 58, and I do not see getting older as any kind of liability. As I get, as I get older every day, mm-hmm. um, as I've worked with my chakras and energy, I. Through each chakra, a guide would communicate to me. So each chakra became sort of a house or a refuge or a retreat for different aspects of myself. And those parts of myself actually became like living guides. And these guides healed and helped me through this horrible trauma that I went through as a child. And part of my passion is and my life work has been about giving voice to people who don't have voice or who are not heard. And that includes, of course, the aging and the dying. as well as people throughout the world who have been told to shut up and, and, and not speak freely. And I think communicating freely and listening freely um, exists on so many levels. It's not just the spoken word, as I mentioned. And I think connecting with our energy centers is one way of learning to connect with guidance and help within us. So that's just um, one, one uh, way to talk about the challenges of my life. And how it intersects with this work that I'm doing of Words at the Threshold.
1: So as you look back at your memories, as, as you look back at the experiences you had, what is that one uh, major life lesson uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Maybe in one sentence. Right. Um, just to
2: listen deeply and to witness. Listen deeply to everything. The world is always speaking to us spirit is always speaking to us there are no accidents and if you listen closely you will hear the truth you need to hear
1: got it so thanks a lot for sharing your story with me and with the listeners of this show you shared that the biggest challenge you faced uh, was when you were severely abused as a child you were told to keep quiet and not express your feelings which I'm sure is such a hard thing to go through so thanks for sharing that with us Uh, you know that experience made you work towards helping others express their. Their voice as well, those who do not have the tools or, or, or strategies to overcome that particular challenge. And to start with, you have to dive within yourself. You have to start with you. You have to reconnect with yourself. You had to work towards healing the trauma that was deep within your subconscious mind. And once you began to do that, once you uh, learned how to own your own voice, your own your own truth, and as you've shared, you've worked on your chakras as well and your different energy centers, you uh, in, uh, encouraged others to do so. But through that process, which I think it's really really amazing uh, so uh, just curious uh, do you currently have a labradorite crystal?
2: Oh no I don't what's it
1: called? Uh, okay so the throat chakra correlates with the labradorite crystal right? if you have that crystal I have a pocket crystal that helps you express your voice more authentically more strongly and it's a beautiful crystal and if you think about it uh, there's a story behind that <laughs> which I can share so labradorite uh, initially comes from the area of Labrador off the coast of Canada and US as well as it's found in Madagascar if you look at the stone it looks it's beautiful it looks like northern lights you see different colors it looks as if you're staring into the universe and you're the northern lights the aurora Borealis, staring at you and the story is that uh, I think it was the ancient Inuits or it was the people who live in the north uh, of Canada one day what happened was as the legend goes that all the tribes members of the tribe noticed that the northern lights had disappeared okay and they were worried what happened to the lights because if you note that in such areas you have darkness for many many months together so they worried what happened to the northern lights and nobody could find out what happened uh, so the chieftain points out to a warrior one of the most experienced warriors and asks him to go out into the void into the darkness and find out and search the light and so the warrior goes goes for many days and months pass by isn't able to find the light until he finally sees the light on a piece of ice far away glistening you know just like the northern lights and he goes there and he takes his sword and he smashes into that light and the rock pieces of that rock fall apart and he looks at that and that's the labradorite crystal it's bluish in color bluish and black and depends on what type of stone you get but it's really beautiful and uh, it helps you heal balance and unblock your throat chakra
2: (laughs) it's beautiful and you know i think what's so exciting about communication is that it is connected to the throat and it's also connected to the heart and the toes mm. and the knees and the ears <laughs> and that we communicate in so many ways. But I will definitely look for that crystal because it's <laughs> obviously connected to my life work, right? And my life purpose and my passion that all of us should should find the ways to communicate and express ourselves that, deeply fulfill our sense of purpose and meaning.
1: Absolutely. And Action Tribe, let me ask you this. Are you having a good time listening so far? Because I know I am. Before we move on, let me ask you, are you spending some time each day using your imagination? Are you spending some time visualizing the future? Or are you spending some time daydreaming? If not, then I highly recommend you start doing so. And sometimes I'm guilty of that too. You know, I feel I need to spend more time using my imagination and just daydreaming. I used to do it a lot as a kid because there's so much power in imagination action tribe because think about it everything around you the headsets that you're using to listen to this show the car that you're driving in maybe the phone that you're using right now the shoes that you're wearing all these inventions were once nothing but a figment of someone's imagination it was deep within their subconscious mind and the person used his or her imagination to visualize and then manifest that into reality knowledge you can you can acquire you can read books you can do courses you can speak to people but imagination that's really up to you Imagination can literally help you come up with the impossible. And in many cases, you might be the only one on this planet with such an idea. And that's probably why Albert Einstein once said, Imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress and giving birth to evolution. So if Albert Einstein said that, then pretty sure that it makes sense for you to use more of your imagination. So, Lisa, as on today, what is your life's calling?
2: My life calling is definitely um, to live and express the many forms of language that exist around us and the deeply spirited forms of language.
1: And uh, talking about a defining moment, you know, something that you read in a book, maybe a person that you met or an experience that you had yourself, was there ever a defining moment in your life that changed things for you?
2: Meeting Raymond, reading and meeting Dr. Raymond Moody who, um, has done research on nonsense and shown the cross-dimensional quality of nonsense, that nonsense, you were talking about imagination and we know that so many of the inventions or things that people saw that were new, people would first ridicule as being nonsense, right? And so that when you hear nonsense in the language of the dying, or in anybody, be open and keep your imagination open because it might actually be a harbinger of new things.
1: Mm -hmm. And actually this opens uh, avenues not only uh, in terms of understanding the language patterns of, of babies and, and, and uh, old people, but also people who are, you know, having challenges like schizophrenia, right, and other mental disabilities.
2: Absolutely, and yes, yes. And we know oftentimes there is an intersection between those people we call crazy and those people yeah. who are brilliant and mm. have access to the imagination and new ways of seeing things. And so it's really important when we hear language that's different or unique unique, that we don't step away in fear, but that we keep our hearts open and imagine that maybe there are new ways and new frontiers in those unusual words.
1: Got it. That's so profound. And with that, we've arrived at the last round for today. And this round is called the wisdom round. Four questions that need four short but action-packed answers so that our listeners can take note and take action. Uh, So, Lisa, what is the best advice that someone has given you?
2: Cultivate the witness
1: really quickly elaborate on that?
2: Cultivate the part of you that observes and doesn't. Ah, Cultivate the part of you that can observe and
1: not be afraid. Got it. So name a personal habit that keeps you going.
2: Uh, Dancing and Aikido, movement, Aikido.
1: So what is your morning routine like? What do you do during the first two, two and a half hours of your day?
2: I love tea. So the very first thing I do is I brew my morning tea. While it brews, I open up my journal And I write down any random dream images. Then I do some kind of stretching and balancing movement for uh, something like I do a little Qigong, Aikido, some yoga. Um, There's something called Katsugunundo, which is a Japanese healing art that I'll do sometimes with my husband. And then I often do the toning. I mentioned I go through my chakras because I find so much wisdom and release in doing that. And then I'll either take a 40-minute walk or dance for 40 minutes, do something like that. And um, then oftentimes when I'm moving, I get sort of insights or images. And I come back and I write those in my journal. And that's kind of what my morning routine looks like. i got to have that tea, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love tea as well. I really, really love tea. I've got a, uh, you know, coffee. Uh, no, what is that? Coffee press? It's a coffee press, but I use that for Me tea. Me too. Oh, nice. <laughs> that is so amazing. When I I went to India a couple of weeks back, and uh, I got my friends some Assam and Darjeeling oh, tea. <laughs> oh,
2: I'm jealous. That's great.
1: <laughs> awesome. So, Lisa, name a book that you'd like to recommend for our listeners today.
2: Donald Miller's book. A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, How I Learned to Live a better story. So it's a wonderful
1: book. So Action Tribe, I know how much you love our book recommendations and I know that many of you purchase these books as soon as you hear them shared on our show. That's why Audible.com is offering Action Tribe one free audiobook download with a 30-day trial free so that you can get to check their amazing service. Now, Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android or Kindle including bestsellers like The Chakra System by Anadia Judith, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda and A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. To download your free audiobook and start listening right away, go to audibletrial.com forward slash MSC. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash MSC for your free audiobook so that you can start listening to your book right away. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for sharing your That's wisdom great. and your learnings. Before you go, tell us one thing that you are grateful for and tell us the best way we can find you online.
2: Well, I'm very grateful that I had the chance to be speaking with people like you and sharing their research of my book, Words to the Threshold. It's an incredible honor and opportunity and I'm very, very grateful for it.
1: Awesome. And how do we find you online? Uh,
2: FinalWordsProject.org. You'll find lots of information about speaking with those you love at the threshold. And there's, my contact information is also there.
1: So there you go, Action Tribe. FinalWordsProject.org. You can go right there and learn more about the last, the final few instances before a person passes into a different plane. And you can learn more about how to make the most out of those last few moments, last few days, last few months with your loved ones. So Lisa, thank you so much for coming on our show, talking to us about the truth behind final words and taking us one step closer to a human revolution.
2: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
1: You're listening to My
3: 7 Chakras. Go to mysevenchakras.com. Download your free gift, Get inspired and take action. Transform your life today.
0: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement.